Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Performance Talks. This week we're joined by SNC coach Nathan Stockley and physio Sam Stewart. These guys have come from opposite sides of the globe to form a close working relationship, creating a mini IST team around a small group of athletes that include world record holder Shirt Ji Yong. In fact, just this week, after we recorded our conversation, Shirt again broke his own world record with a snatch of 169 kilograms in the 73kg weight category. We talk with Nathan and Sam about their backgrounds and what brought them together, the crossover between their roles, and how the pandemic has affected their preparations for the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with your friends and leave a rating as this helps us to reach more people in the performance community. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, we are at Perform Talks, and Instagram, we are at Performance Talks. Now over to the discussion with Nathan and Sam. Okay, um, yeah, my name's Nathan. Uh, I'm from England. I'll be very quick with my uh, short CV. So I did my undergraduate in uh, sports science at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge before going on to Edinburgh to do a master's in strength and conditioning. Uh, shortly after that, I did an internship with Harlequins Rugby Club. And then since then, I've worked for a school, um, Oakham School, which is in the Midlands. I was there for two years before moving on to the Scottish Institute of Sport for a short period. I then worked with Warrington Wolves Rugby League. Um, not long after that, I worked for another school, rugby school, which is in the Midlands. And then that brought me to here. And I've been here for almost three years now with the Chinese weightlifting team. Nice. That's a, that's quite a CV in team sports there. Um, really interesting to, we'll, we'll talk a little bit in a minute about how you've transitioned from working in team sports to working in an individual sport, but I'll now bring Sam into the, the show. Sam, if you can give us a little intro about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me on guys. Uh, I am a physiotherapist, but I first trained as a sports scientist back in South Australia at the University of South Australia for both my degrees. Um, and I've had a real mixed uh, working history from both in kind of coaching and teaching in the sports science sphere um, and then moving into physiotherapy. I've done bits of everything from working in remote Indigenous communities, working in hospital ICUs and on the ward uh, to private clinical work and then working with different sport teams and state kind of sport programs from athletics, soccer and uh, women's gridiron. Came over to China. Nice guys, um, thanks for joining us. I know it's kind of late where you are in China. So um, before we kick off, we'll ask you, like we ask everybody, um, just a little bit of time at the start of the show to mention any mentors that you've got. So Sam, if you want to go first, anybody you'd particularly like to shout out? One of the people I, I really do need to shout out is actually Luke Napstein, who is a SNC coach who now works at the South Australian Institute of Sport. Because um, he he got me working at the University of South Australia's at the time like health and fitness kind of facility, which allowed Luke to be my boss and do some mentoring there. But that environment itself was just fantastic because we had post-grad physio, kind of nutrition, dietetics, S&C guys, 
honours students, PhD candidates that would all work within that environment system. So we all got to see a lot of each other, hang out with a lot of each other and just like shoot ideas off of each other in the gym. So it wasn't a formal mentorship environment, but it was just an incredible environment that allowed us to all kind of grow our skills and gain bits from everyone. Um, then some of the other guys, I've got a, a mate, Dan Ryan, who runs his own clinic now, but got me onto like SFMA side of things, which has just been a really important element of my career and progression philosophies development around physiotherapy. And then the one other random clinic clinician I worked with was Nikki Burgess, who got me into some more of the left field of physiotherapy in some kind of like strain, counter strain and craniosacral treatments, which I don't particularly do, but it was a very interesting exposure that allowed me to develop other clinical and physical skills that have been very beneficial for me in physiotherapy. Nice. Um, that you mentioned there, like that environment where sometimes mentorships aren't, aren't formalized, but they're just great experiences of, of having good people around you, aren't they? Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. Nice. What about you, Nath? Okay. Yeah. So I've been quite lucky in some of the environments that I've worked in. I've had some really good coaches um, that have been above me. When I was at Harlequins Rugby Club, uh, I worked under a guy called John Dams, who is a pretty smart guy. He now works for um, Kitman Labs, I think, in Australia. Uh, after that, when I went to the Scottish Institute, oh, sorry, uh, the Scottish Institute of Sport, I worked under some really smart senior coaches, uh, Ryan King and Neil Donald. And also worked alongside a guy called John Coogans, who I learned quite a lot from. And then when I was at Warrington Wolves, I worked uh, under a guy called Nick Turner, who's been in rugby league for years. So I would say, not necessarily mentors per se, but pretty similar to what Sam said, just coaches that I've worked with and worked under is who I've learned my um, a lot of my skills from. One of the mistakes that I made when I was younger when I worked for, I worked for a school called Oakham School for two years. And at that point, I was working by myself. I didn't have anyone uh, above me. And so I made the mistake of never reaching out to any coaches. Um, and so I had a couple of years almost in the wilderness of not really learning from anyone. And the annoying thing, well, sort of one, one of the silly things is now is I'm older and more, se uh, more senior than I've ever been. But I reach out to more people now. So, yeah, one of my biggest mistakes is when I was younger, not reaching out to, to enough people for help. Uh, a couple of other people that I should mention, um, I did a bit of mentorship with a guy called Dave Cripps who runs Coalition Performance in the Midlands. And um, Ryan King as well also helped me out um, a while back for a, a long period of time. So I would say if you're a coach who hasn't got any mentors or you're working by yourself, you know, go out, seek, find mentors. There seems to be a lot of coaches now that are doing mentorship programs. So if you're in the position where you're not working under anyone and you're working independently, go and seek coaches, go and seek senior coaches for mentorship because there's plenty out there that are offering that kind of service and help. I think that's a really good point because the nature of the industry, a lot of people are out there working on their own. And even if you're not specifically on your own, you're part of another team. You're the only person in that role. And therefore, if you don't have anyone 
more senior than you as a younger coach, you know, it's very difficult to to learn some of those things. There's a certain amount of learning that comes from the transition from academia and what you learn in your degree to actually learning how it works in practice. But again, you can learn so much from the people around you, I think. It's a really good, you know, good idea there, Nathan. Yeah, I agree with that. Like a bit like Nathan, I guess when I first went over to China and you get you get stuck up in, with a team somewhere and it might not be with a with a huge group of of expats around you or it might not be in a big training center with lots of different sports around you it's so easy to fall into that trap and i would say the same thing for for the you know the first two years probably i was in in china i had very limited exposure to other coaches to to get that just like you said it doesn't have to be a mentorship but just just somebody to bounce ideas off i just I had a season like that, and I think my my saviour was other podcasts. It yeah. was, uh, you know, I, I went for a walk every day after lunch. Obviously, we know the Chinese athletes love to have a long nap. Um, instead of that, I'd go for a walk around the park and listen to a podcast, and that was that was incredible actually. Because again, like a, like a mentorship, you don't expect to learn something specifically like a podcast isn't like a lecture. You're not supposed to be taking notes, but listen to enough conversations, and you pick up a few things. Um, yeah. Yeah, for for whatever reason, I can't really really remember now, is I had this period where there were probably coaches around me um, that I could have gone to for help. And for some reason, I just tried to do it all by myself. And actually, there are probably plenty of coaches who I could have rung up and said, hi, can you have a look at my programming? Can you have a look at what I'm doing? Can I tell you what I'm doing? And you tell me if you think I can do anything better. But for some reason, there were just long periods where... I just didn't do that. And um, the funny thing is I do it more now than I did do when I needed it the most. Yeah. No, I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's an element of maturity, an element of confidence. Uh, and I'm exactly the same. When you're a young coach and, you know, we often we talk about the old imposter syndrome, but it, it's easy to, to not want to put yourself out there in case someone critiques you and says what you're doing wrong. But actually I'm the same as you now. Like I speak to more people now about my coaching and about their coaching than I ever did, you know, four or five years ago. And Sam, you've got quite an interesting background because not only you physio, but like you mentioned there, some of your key influences have been from the strength and conditioning side um how did you find that you know obviously your studies were in physiotherapy but how did you find that learning more about the strength and conditioning side of things if because of that background in kind of sports science which already had an emphasis on like we had to do exercise prescription of 140 hours to healthy population I did start working between finishing my sports science degree and getting into physiotherapy. Like I started, I did some work in uh, different environments from like commercial gyms to disabled living centres to starting to work in sports teams. So I kind of started to get very exposed to that S&C world. And then early on, I also, again, directly from actually Luke Napstein recommending it, like I, I got exposed to people like Eric Cressy and Mike Robertson kind of before I got into physiotherapy and these were guys that were so smart, had such a clinical kind of 
backing behind what they were doing in SNC that it all, by the time I became a physio, like it just felt like this should be a natural part of physiotherapy, which is now sometimes where I'll clash with other other sports med and other SNC providers where I'm like, they'll sit there and tell me that, oh, doing this exercise is rehabilitation and that's not my job if they're the SNC side of things or the sports med guys might be like, that's performance training and it's not my job. I'm like, it's all on the same spectrum and it's all, like, it's a shared job that you both need. Like, you don't need to be the specialist in it, but you need to have a shared skill set because it is, like, when does rehab finish and when does performance training begin? Like, yeah. Really yeah. tell me the difference. It's... That that's brilliant. We uh, we picked we picked into that um, or picked that topic up on another conversation that we've had, and Steve and I have chatted about this a lot. Like, there's a huge amount that happens in that grey area between sort of the clearly defined roles, and for me, that's where a lot of the magic happens when you're working with yeah. people that are on the same page as you. It becomes very. Um, sort of very easy but those conversations are so much better that treatment and the training plan is therefore so much better for the athlete yeah absolutely and particularly I mean it's very big in the weightlifting sphere where you go like doing a hundred kilo step up could kind of still be like if this guy's got knee pain but he's getting knee pain when he squats 200 kilos that could still be a rehab exercise for this guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure i mean like, I, I like i i did some of the, i did some work with the um you know with the weightlifting team when i um when i was out there in china and it, it is funny you say that because like you know you do rehab on one athlete and you're using like mini bands and some two or three kg dumbbells and you're like these guys are like tanks like i'm gonna need to grab yeah. you know something a lot bigger than this you know, I'm going to have to grab a power band or a, you know, or a heavy barbell to actually get even close to a kind of, you know, submaximal load. Yeah, stimulus for them. You yeah. know, just any kind of stimulus. So that that's that, that's actually really interesting because I'd love to chat. What one of the reasons I wanted to have you guys on together is because I think it's really interesting how um, you guys have obviously come from sort of different backgrounds, moved over from different countries. Um, but you're now working with one sort of fairly small team and have had to create that kind of almost like a mini IST team around these athletes. And I really wanted to sort of chat to you guys about how how that works, how you share the role of performance and, and physiotherapy, where you cross over and how you kind of create those training plans together. So I know that's a very open question, but like, you know, how do you find, how do you define those roles and how have you kind of brought them together? Yeah, I mean, probably I, just I think... uh, worth it. Go, Nath. Okay, I was just going to explain to people. Um, so within the weightlifting team, within the men's team, there are 12 athletes and they're each divided into small teams of four. And so myself and Sam work with just the same four athletes and their coach. So we have for the last uh, two and a half years worked with the same four athletes, and that's our that's our local team. 
Nice. And that's, uh, you know, that's pretty intense when you're day to day with the same people and the same small group of athletes. Um, you know, like if anyone's having a, having a bad day, it's hard to, uh, hard to avoid them. <laughs> but, um, yeah. How have you guys shared that workload and kind of created that like mini IST team that you guys have now? It has, uh, we've worked surprisingly well together for people that hadn't met each other before and being thrown into that like a very foreign environment with a lot of challenges I think we've done exceptionally well um I do think that there's been a lot of early on especially when we were first getting to know the team getting to know the athletes we kind of took a a reasonable step back to let them kind of show us what they wanted a little bit more to try to learn what are like we can't just come in here and know what to do straight away. We have to find out what you're already doing, what are you doing well, what are you potentially not doing well that we might be able to contribute to. Um, and then it was basically just trying to get the best understanding of our athletes that we could so we knew where to start with them and then we could divvy up that role of like, okay, these guys need more of my attention and time here in kind of a rehabby or learning more about them since and when we needed to just push them harder and progress things further it's like cool this is where Nathan can kind of do more of his kind of field um but we've also just had ridiculous amounts of conversations together like we'd sit around and just bounce ideas off each other constantly be like I think these guys need to work on this you think they need to work on that how can we do that in a way that does actually work together and we both feel like we're doing something nice and how, how on earth do you possibly find the time to chat when you live together, travel together, work together day in, day out? Like, I don't know. How would you make those conversations happen? Oh, it's a real challenge, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not like we eat every meal together or anything like that either. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then obviously we couple lockdown into it and now you guys – can't even get away from each other if you want to. No. I'm sure you're Not both loving that. We've we've grown closer over lockdown. We've been holidaying together. We never did that before lockdown. It's interesting. Like let's let's if we can possibly for a second ignore COVID. I know that's pretty tricky to do, but in terms of like how weightlifting works, and, and you guys have already said you work with a pretty small group of athletes. What does that look like kind of over over a year? I, I know you guys are sort of primarily based in Beijing, but I think you guys travel a fair bit as well. So what does that look like for you guys? So if we talk about the last year with COVID, it's now April 2021. Um, January 2020, when COVID started, our base in Beijing just got completely locked down. So for four months, we were locked up on a small campus-like base with all of the training facilities and canteen. So we could not leave at all. So whilst the rest of the world was dealing with COVID in its own way, we actually carried on training. Um, Nothing actually changed for us, just with the exception of we were pretty much locked up in what felt like a prison for the first four months. And then after that, when COVID started to settle down a little bit, we were allowed to leave to go to different training camps around the country, but we were still locked up. 
we've had a couple of periods where they've released us for some holidays, but then we've had to come back to Beijing, do a thousand health tests to make sure we haven't got COVID and then go back into lockdown. So in the last almost just under a year and a half, we've had five weeks of freedom and the rest of it has been pretty much solidly locked up mm -hmm. in training camps. So yeah, it's been tough. Is it is interesting to see the the different approaches obviously that different places have taken? We've spoken to people that have worked in you know the English Institute of Sport, the Canadian Institute of Sport, and obviously those places uh, dealt with things quite quite differently. Some of the athletes in in some countries still aren't actually training together; they're doing home training and things like that. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how those differences play out in the summer. Um, but how have your overall preparations changed from what you were looking at last, you know, last January and your preparations for the Olympics in the summer, having been given an extra year, how, you know, first off, how was that received by the team? And then how has that changed your, you know, your preparations? Yeah. Um, no one was really happy about the Olympics being postponed. Uh, the extra strain that's gone on the athletes and the coaches has been enormous. So the athletes have done extremely well to, to carry on and not completely lose their minds as we have. I think it's literally just been a case of roll our sleeves up and, and just crack on and get on with it. And yeah, um, I think what people need to remember is in China, yeah, you talked about the EIS and, and and in Canada, in China, everyone lives on training camps. So China is a huge country. I don't think people realize how big it is. It's bigger than Europe. So athletes from all over the country will come to, say, Beijing, and they will live in under training camps. They will live in accommodation together. Uh, they live with us. We will live in the same buildings. We'll um, eat together. We'll train together. So when COVID happened, it's very easy for them just to shut the front door, shut, lock the gate, and then we carry on training as normal. So I think that, compared to other countries, might possibly give China an advantage. Mm -hmm. I remember last year when a lot of athletes were talking about, around the world were talking about waiting to hear if the games had been postponed because they couldn't train. We were just carrying on training as normal because that, in that sense, it didn't affect us. Yeah. It didn't stop us training. It's a, it's a really interesting point. I want to pick up on one of the other things, though, you mentioned. Obviously, the a lot of people won't real, maybe don't know, but the Chinese national teams usually disband after the Olympics and they take it, you know, the, the athletes will go back to their provinces and they basically take the year off. Do you think that postponement and that kind of cancelling of that year off, did that have a negative impact on the athletes? Do you think they were all really looking forward to having that break after the Olympics? given that they live in this training camp environment year-round? Yeah, I think, I think most definitely. Um, must have. <laughs> I think it absolutely must have because, like, these athletes had already been in the national team expecting to get their potential year off if they're planning to rejoin the team again next year. Um, and then I'm... I'm I also believe some of the athletes, not directly the ones that we work with, but some athletes plan on retiring after this Olympics. So it's like this kind of delays whatever plans they had for their whole life. Um, and the added load of these guys don't know 
how long they're now going to get off between this Olympic cycle and the next Olympic cycle because this is meant to be their year off. That was and that was a yeah, really interesting point I wanted to ask you about was obviously the Olympics 2020 have been moved to 2021, but the Olympics 2024 are still Olympics 2024. So how does that look? And, and have you had any conversations around that of, of what that looks like now? We have had conversations, but nothing's been confirmed with, because there's, there's the national uh, games is potentially in September, which would normally be their national team selection competition which is obviously only happening, you know, a month to two months after now when the Olympics will be. Um, so there's talk that they will either reform towards the end of this year or early next year so that the athletes should still get some chance for a break, but it's obviously not going to be the year off that we normally get. Yeah. Is the... Um... I'm just thinking about the Asian Games. That must be 2022. Yes. Would they, yeah. So they. Yeah. So yeah. Hangzhou. So yeah. so they're going to obviously compete in what are we talking July August time 2021 and then yeah, September 2022 is the Asian Games in Hangzhou. Okay, so they have like a, a basically a year between olympics and then asian games so there's a lot to cram in in a in a very short space of time by the sounds of things yeah and given the fact that you also don't know what it's going to look like returning back from tokyo like coming back in how long are they going to have to quarantine what's all that going to be like for them um so yeah i think it's going to be a much more stressed potentially national team that reforms whenever it reforms yeah that's a, a really interesting challenge like you said it's it's going to be interesting to see how different countries around the world have, have coped with it and i guess only the the kind of medals and results will really show you know which uh, which system kind of worked or sort of work best in in terms of performance and results um but it's definitely been a you know a huge challenge there um we'll move on a little bit to go into chatting about the programming that you guys actually do and you know we've talked a, a lot about it being you know you guys have both come from team sport backgrounds when you work in team sports a lot of the time you're looking to things like olympic lifting as a way to improve athletes performance but then when you get into a team where weightlifting and strength is their sport, how do you then actually program to try and help them improve their performance? Particularly, uh, from, I think the first, I... <laughs> particularly from my like physiotherapy perspective, a lot of what my focus has really been on, like, trying to keep them in as little pain as possible so that they can do their normal training, which is more of that, like, protecting the athlete or just trying to keep them on the pitch attitude versus being like, yeah, there's some maybe little links in the chain that strengthening can improve, but at the end of the day, if they're missing six weeks from lifting heavy things, that's probably going to have a bigger impact 
on their performance than some exercise that I'm going to give them in terms of getting them stronger at a step up or a glute bridge or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a fair approach. I mean, even when you're working with a team, there's nothing greater for the coach than the ability to select who they want, right? That's that's really what helps performance. Is doesn't matter if one guy can run a bit faster if he's not, you know, not available for selection. He can't have any impact on the team. Yeah. So, um, Nathan, how do you find that that kind of role for you? Because obviously, like Olympic lifting would be something you would have done a lot of, particularly with a rugby background. How have you found that transition into actually working with weightlifters? I didn't really find it too hard. The reason being is the first thing we did, myself and Sam, was sit down with the coaches and the athletes and ask them the most important performance question, which is, what do you want from us? What do you want us to do? How can we help you? Um, what do you, you know, what, what, what do you want us, why are we here? And as soon as you get that clarity from the coaches and the athletes in our case as well, then things become a lot easier. So it's clear, um, you know, in our situation, it was a, a case of, this is where me, you know, the board, the crossover between me and Sam is quite strong because a lot of what the coaches want us to do is just help improve movements, uh, improve or work on any weak links in the chain, work on any small weaknesses. And I think the coaches might have expected a physio to come in and just sit in a, a room and work with therabands and do one kilogram uh, shoulder external rotations. And then they see a physio like Sam who loads athletes up with hundred kilogram step-ups and 20 kilogram suitcase carries. I don't think that was the sort of thing they're expecting. I think they were expecting that from me and from him to maybe put on a white lab coat and sit in a room with therabands. <laughs> so there's been a huge, huge crossover between us in that sense. We were t- you asked earlier about uh, cooperation. We've got on really well. The times that we've maybe disagreed is when we've both argued about when we've both wanted to do the same exercises in our sessions. So if I'm doing a performance session <laughs> and I want to load the athletes up with some heavy press-ups, Sam also wants to load up heavy press-ups in his rehab sessions. And then we find that, oh, actually, we both want to do exactly the same things. <laughs> Well, that's a that's a pretty good disagreement to have, I guess. It shows you're on the same page and you're just sort of, the only disagreement is trying to work out when you're going to do it so that you're not, you know, you're not doubling up. Um, yeah, that's that's awesome. I think that's that, um, so that, that point of um, going into the team and like asking what they, what they want, what they expect, I, it seems like that's a trend through all of the people we're having coming on, coming on the pod. But I think that's, you know, a, a positive sign. And and again, it goes back to that level of of almost confidence and maturity of you're not trying to throw every single bit of training you know about at the athletes. You're not trying to do every single exercise you know because nobody cares if you're like, you aren't trying to impress the athletes, they aren't going to be impressed. They will have seen it all before. They'll have gone through a thousand different coaches before. I think it's so crucial to get that understanding. And, and 
you know, Simon and I obviously had that role with Team China where we were placing a lot of coaches in weightlifting and lots of them were not having a, a fair deal of success, I think it's fair to say. And and I think that partly is is attributed to that. Like, if you go in with your own mindset of this is what I'm going to do into Chinese weightlifting, let's not forget, guys, <laughs> they win a lot of gold medals. <laughs> like, you can... You can you know, think what you like about the training methods and they're different possibly to, to how we would train them, but they win lots of gold medals. And I think that you, you've you done it just the perfect way to go in and say, listen, what do you want from us? How can we fit into this team to, to, to help you achieve success? Yeah, I think that's a great, like I said, a great point on on the maturity front of understanding the role and something that you said earlier, Sam, as well about the the observation and the fact that you needed to sort of also talk to the athletes. Um, I think we, we've all seen like high staff turnovers in China on various teams. Um, it happens. A lot of people come out there thinking, you know, the streets are paved with gold and they're going to get to run the show. And then they get there and actually the reality is very different. And some people thrive and some people really struggle. Um, you guys have obviously been with the team for what, three years now, three and a half years, I think. Um how you know why would you say you guys have sort of been so successful with with the team um other than the things i just mentioned about asking questions also just listening to the athletes if you're working with a world champion athlete in any sport and he or she says i don't want to do that it hurts isn't going to help me you're probably going to listen to them even if you are 100% certain that this is going to help them uh you know obviously you can have conversations with them you can try and get them on side but ultimately if they're not going to do it then they're not going to do it and I think we've been quite we've not been lenient or pushovers but we've been very accepting of what they've told us and uh, I think that's put us in in good stead I've met some coaches out here in China who haven't had that approach and They've gone a bit too gun ho with their athletes and tried to get them to do things that the athletes haven't been keen on, and that has broken down relationships. Yeah, I, I personally can say I've I've seen that happen before. Um, like you said, you've got athletes there who have won championships, they've won medals, they may not have been to the Olympics yet, but they they are successful athletes. They're in one of the best teams in the world, and are one of the top athletes in the world and they've probably worked with quite a few other people and so they'll have no they know you know a good practitioner from from a not so good one they know what's worked for them in their own case i think taking that on board is really really huge um you know i i love that idea of bringing you know particularly when you're the new guy on the team bringing that sort of sensibility and just being able to ask and question um what's that like when you your little team of four i know you have one particular kind of standout star athlete um how does that work with with that athlete compared with the other athletes on the on the sort of mini team that you've got i mean as as with any kind of environment like it does it's very personality based so two of our athletes 
will pretty much listen to most things that you say regardless. Like even if they think it might make them a bit uncomfortable, I think they usually give it a go and then they'll kind of test it out and then they'll give you feedback if they think, no, this doesn't work and we need to change it. Where two of the other guys are much more, they've got much stronger beliefs about what they think they need and what is good for them um, and what the things that they do should look like and particularly what they should feel like to them while they do it. So you really then need to listen and try to work with that and go, okay, if, if you think this is what you need and I think this is what you need and they're that far apart, what can we try to do to get it closer to some middle ground that actually gives you the feeling that we're working on what we need to work on while we're also like, oh, I feel like we're working on what we need to work on as well. Um, and that is also why it's good to, although we've got a small team like we've, like Nathan and myself and the Chinese staff, like it does allow us to split that workload up a little bit where you go, if an athlete is being particularly frustrating on a day, you can share that frustration around a little bit and go, okay, cool, let's just, let's just move on from that and not deal with it or let's, let's like get someone else to try to explain it a different way and see if we can convince them or what do they actually feel like we need to do to get something happening here because there have been moments when it turns into like a 20 minute translated discussion about like why are we trying to do this or why do they think we should do it a different way? Um, and then it just gets to a point where it's like, this is wasting a lot of our session time. Can we just kind of move on and do something? I love those. I remember those conversations where you, you know, you've tried to ask a simple question. Suddenly there's six people, everyone's got phones out trying to translate. Yeah. Things. <laughs> And suddenly you're like one question in a training session has turned into like a 20 minute debate about something. And you're like, actually, right. I'm, I'm glad I've got you here for two hours. Cause we just wasted. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the worst part of those conversations is, is when either you, you reply with like a one word answer and then the translation goes on for five minutes. So you're like, thinking, yeah. hang on. <laughs> or you give like a really, really detailed answer. And then the translation is two words. You're like, yeah, I'm not convinced that, that <laughs> we're actually having the same conversation here. I think like on a, on a serious note though, I think you like, you bring up an excellent point that a lot of people miss in that there are lots of different reasons why athletes like exercises and don't like exercises. And I think a lot of the time we boil it down and oversimplify things to go, listen, this is the response that we want. Therefore, this is the stimulus that we need to apply. That's it. End of story. Where you might have an athlete who has an emotional reaction to an exercise. They might have had a bad experience with an exercise in the past they might have had a bad experience with a with a coach so it's not even the exercise they don't like they didn't like an old coach who gave them that exercise to do it so i think you know like you said being willing to have those conversations and and accepting that there needs to be some flexibility and and, and i think sam you said it that's perfect it's like the athletes have an expectation of what an exercise should feel like to them. And there is nothing on this earth that any of us can do to know how an exercise feels to somebody else. So yeah. you, you just have to take their word for it and, and have that conversation with them, even if it takes 20 minutes and it goes through six translators. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I think that's key. Something that I always bring up in my coaching all the time is saying to people, like, you are the only person that can feel this. I can see how it looks to my eye, and I know what it should be feeling like. I know how it feels like to me, but you're the only person that knows how that feels to you. So engaging with people and getting them used to giving that kind of feedback. Did you have any... Um, any barriers to kind of getting that feedback from the athletes or were they generally pretty good when you first started? Depended on the athlete. So we had one in particular who I wouldn't say that we didn't try to communicate with him, but he was definitely the youngest and shyest of the group. Um, and we, we, did, we trained him for months to find out that, certain exercises we were doing were making him quite uncomfortable. But given his history of you, I mean, as you've both worked in China, you kind of know how it works when someone tells you to do something, they just do it. They don't ask how many, they don't kind of... So he wasn't reporting to us any of the issues that he had. Um, so he just took longer to build that trust and rapport with where some of the other guys, again, particularly the more accomplished athletes, were from day one. It's like if they felt something they thought they shouldn't feel and they wanted to change something, I'd tell you straight away. I, and I do think some of the younger guys' hesitation and maybe some of the other athletes is obviously it can be, be very frustrating for them to try to communicate to us when they don't speak English Maybe their translator isn't immediately there or isn't overly interested in translating, so they just don't feel like they can communicate, so they just decide not to bother communicating. Yeah. It's, it's the biggest worry, I suppose, in, in that environment, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, you have no idea what's being translated. If you can't speak Chinese, you have absolutely no idea what is being translated and... There are so many nuances and subtleties with the language that one thing that you say might be translated in a, in a completely different way and can take that conversation down a rabbit hole that you never, ever meant for it to go down. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, don't, I don't think that, I mean, other than learn Chinese, I don't think there's, a, <laughs> there's an answer to that, you know, to that, no. to that question. And that's... that's um... That's also magnified when your translator isn't a proper translator. I'm pretty certain that when we came over here, you promised us we'd have good translators. <laughs> I don't. I never made that. <laughs> I never made that promise. Our translator is our doctor, and we love him to bits. But if any, maybe any British people have seen Faulty Towers, it is like Basil talking to to Manuel. <laughs> we asked we asked the doctor we said to our doctor can you ask him to take his shoes off so we can look at him do this exercise without his shoes and the first response was oh you want a pair of those shoes we'll <laughs> That's and then it turned into a 20 minute it, it then turned into a 20 minute debate on well when he squats he has to wear shoes because he can't squat properly he can't do heavy squats barefoot. And we weren't asking him to. We wanted him to do a bodyweight squat with his shoes off. And that turned into a 20-minute debate on weightlifting shoes. And, yeah, it was – all he had to do was do a bodyweight squat. 
and we would have been fine. But it turned into a 20-minute conversation. And there have been times where we would have been better off without a translator and just using Google Translate. Yeah, I I remember those conversations well. And uh, I've actually been, you know, been there myself. Like you, like you said, there's actually times where you're better off without a translator sometimes. if if And, and it's, it's really harsh because it's not that person's job. It's not that person's assigned role. They're just stepping in to help the team. Uh, yeah. And they're just doing their best. Um, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I've had it before. I've had a team doctor before as a translator. And, and like you say, like, at the end of the day, they that isn't their job. They aren't they, they can speak, you know, reasonably decent conversational English a lot of the time, but that isn't their their job. And they have a job to do. So like like you say, it's very easy to get frustrated with that person when it isn't that person's fault. You know, it's really hard. I remember the rowing team, they had a cock that one of their cocks was their <laughs> <Yeah>. translator. <laughs> it's like it does, it does blow my mind and and we can joke about whether or not i uh i told you you were going to get a decent translator but the 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 fact (laughs) is that that for for the year simon and i did that project with team china we said so many times the importance of having decent translators especially for for nothing else of that you know let's we don't need to beat around the bush. We go there, like foreigners go to China because you earn a lot of money, right? Our expertise is expensive in China. It's worth a lot of money. But teams will not pay the bare minimum for a translator to make the most out of your expertise. It, it does yeah. it does kind of confuse me. I don't know why they've, they've never switched on to that. But I guess, you know, they've been having foreign help now for 20 odd years and they still haven't cracked that one. One thing that being out here has made me figure out, though, is how much coaching you can do without saying anything. When I was younger, maybe even just a few years ago, I used to overcoach and and try and coach every single coaching point. Now I can demonstrate an exercise without saying a single word and then let the athlete do it. And when I eventually coach back in uh, an English-speaking language, I'm not sure if I'll be able to speak to the athletes. I've, I've forgotten how to how to coach with my mouth. <laughs> it was funny when I first moved back to, to Canada, I had exactly that. First off, an hour-long session went by in no time at all because I was used to, you know, <laughs> having like two and a half hours with an athlete and sometimes having time to fill. Um, but yeah, it's such a, an interesting point. You learn how much of our communication is actually nonverbal. And how much of that verbal communication is actually noise that is probably more confusing to an athlete than it is helping. And if you can learn to boil that down and just get the bare minimum in and focus on one thing at a time. Nothing more confusing than trying to give someone 10 different things that are contradicting each other. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, I wish there's a way to actually learn that uh, maybe Steve, this is this is where you come into it as a teacher. You know, try it's, try and teach that in your practical sessions. It's it's funny that you say that because I was just as you were saying that I was thinking. So so I, we're teaching our we're teaching some sports therapists like a like strength and conditioning one hundred and one right now, and they have to coach you know some basic movements, deadlifts, squats, etc. And it's it's comical 
to watch because I was watching a guy couldn't just didn't have a, a great movement pattern and you know a decent coach could go over and give one or two decent cues and and that situation would be would be resolved where they are very novice and they and they aren't strength and conditioning coaches they're sports therapists right um you've got these three people all shouting different instructions at this poor guy who's in a rack and he's like he can't do the movement he's having problems with his motor patterning anyway and you've got people going sit back no 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 sit up no no no. move your back no no you need to move forward no move your move your, your feet are too wide your feet are too narrow and i just kind of walked over i'm like guys maybe just one person give him some coaching because <laughs> he has got three people shouting instructions at him all completely different instructions as well um and and i think you're right it's it's changes your ability i was actually going to ask sam because from a from a snc perspective you know, it's it's almost. I I, I don't know. I, I would imagine it's easier because we can just demo an exercise, right? And just go, you know, use your eyes. This is what it looks like. Let's go. But how do you find that, Sam? Because because I imagine you, in various parts of your practice, need quite a lot of dialogue with the with the athlete. It has been very challenging at times, particularly like. Starting out when you're very used to doing subjective assessments, getting a lot of information about how does a patient feel when they do certain things, what specific things irritate them, what things make them feel better. Where in China, they just kind of come up, tell you where it hurts, then want to lay down on the table, get you to fix them somehow. Um, it has been very challenging. With a, From the exercise prescription perspective, I've been able to work around it more because of the amount of time and consistent kind of exposure I get with the athletes so that we can start doing certain exercises and we can very much go this week or the next two weeks, I'm mostly just going to cue the one thing consistently and work on that. And once they get that, we go on to the next thing and then the next thing because with the limitation between translation, not kind of being able to get the point across, um, but also just some more of the nuanced stuff to the exercises. Like I get my big rocks out of the way first, and then if it doesn't look perfect to start with, but I don't think it's going to kind of hurt anyone, fine. We just crack on, we keep going, and then as they get better at it, then we start getting more picky and try to refine things kind of over the weeks as they progress with it. Um, but from a clinical perspective, it's... It's very different when someone comes to you with an acute thing and you're trying to get information from them. You kind of, you get a little bit of subjective stuff and then you very much have to start trying to rely way more on objective testing, um, which is just challenging because that's normally informed by all your subjective <laughs> information. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you, um, do you guys, obviously, Sam, you've got kind of a, obviously a good background in sports science and, you know, Nathan will have from, from an MSc in strength and conditioning. Do you, are you able to implement much sports science there? It, it, whether it's in the realms of, you know, wellness questionnaires. I know Nathan was doing some stuff with bar tracking and stuff like that. I'm interested to know if you guys do much, much there. We'll start with the bar tracking now. Yes. So I got my hands on a, um, a device called a VMAX Pro, which is a German barbell tracking device. 
Uh, Randy Huntington, who's the head of athletics, um, got me onto that. And I started to track barbell paths um, and all the metrics that can come with that. And there was absolutely no interest at all from the athletes or the coaches. Um, absolutely none. They have very little um, interest in that area of, of feedback. Um, it's just not, they've never used it. They've got, they've won numerous gold medals without it. And I don't really think they're, they, they feel that they need it or it's going to help them in any way, shape or form. That's really interesting. I actually, um, like, I know, I know the, you know, the sort of head coach and team you're working with, and they're usually pretty, pretty open to new ideas. I'm actually kind of surprised that they didn't like it, but I do also understand that if they've, you know, been incredibly successful, it's, you know, it's going to take a lot to convince them to change what they're doing. I think as well, like that, it's a good think, point. And, and when you say like, why do we need to? We've won multiple gold medals. We're continuing to win multiple gold medals. I know that the athletes that you work with, and, and in particular, you know, one one athlete is is setting you know just outrageous numbers. So, yeah, why? Why? I think maybe, and and I, I I'm just thinking from my experience, athletes and the coaches of athletes tend to um, not have, you know, the sort of level of education that we have. So it may be that there's a little bit of a fear, lack of understanding. I'm not sure where that falls into it, but, you know, it, that's that's not necessarily to do with them being Chinese. I've worked with with older coaches who, if you start talking technology at them, they just completely switch off. So maybe it's a, a combination of those factors. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure they're technophobes. Um, I think it's just literally a case of they have got, if you look at weightlifting in this in China, in China, weightlifting is a way for a lot of kids from poor areas to get out of poverty. So they start weightlifting from a very young age. And these are kids that probably don't get to go to school. So weightlifting is their escape. So they'll start weightlifting in very rundown gyms. If they're good, they'll get to a sports school where they'll do weightlifting every day of the week. And then they'll go on to represent their city and their province. And then if they're lucky, the national team. And they've got that far without using any technology. And then you give them the technology and their reaction is, oh, okay, that's that's pretty cool. That's neat, but I, I don't need it. It's not it's not helping me. It's not giving me any information. Uh, if you take, I know, a typical Western journal on weightlifting, and it talks about uh, barbell kinematics and and KPIs and, and strength KPIs, they've never had that information. So it doesn't really. They don't really see that it, as it helping them. There's no. There's no force plates over here or in the weightlifting gym. There's no force plates. There's, there's no need. There's no desire for any of this uh, equipment. I even filmed an athlete doing a slow motion lift on my phone and showed it to the athlete and the coach. And their first thing they said was, oh, don't film slow motion, just film normal speed. We, we don't need to see it in slow motion. And that's the other thing. These coaches' eyes are fantastic. So they don't need technology to be able to know the height of the bar, you know, 
uh, vertical uh, vertical displacement of the bars a, a KPI in weightlifting, but the coaches probably don't need a barbell tracking device to to see that. They can see it with their own eyes. They can tell if the lift was faster or slower than the lift before. I think that's a really good uh, point to make is the, you know, there's often a debate about the role of technology and how it's either helping or impeding the kind of actual art of coaching, the process of coaching. And I think not only have these athletes been in a weight room every day of their lives, those coaches have been in that in that same weight room watching every single rep every day of their lives. And they probably have the, you know, the most kind of honed coaching eye there possibly could be. They just know some of these things innately. Um, Like you said, they know if it was a good lift or not. They know if the bar was level or not. They know if, you know, someone's weight was wrong. They're going to be able to see all of that. Um, Have you had any other instances, Sam, where you've tried to bring in an element of technology or monitoring that has perhaps gone down a little bit better? Not not really better overall. We did one thing that we did successfully, I suppose, was I got the team to purchase a handheld dynamometer under the context of if we could do some more kind of reliable and valid testing, we could then make some better decisions about what areas to target. Um, so my team through their province eventually got myself and one of the other doctors handheld dynamometers that we could use. Um, did they break it the first time they did a groin squeeze? <laughs> they broke some. That, yeah. They, we experimented with the best protocols to use. And so we did a, a mix of like make contractions versus break contractions. Um, knowing full well that it was going to be extremely challenging, but there were definitely some groups where you're just like, well, we can't break that. A break is not an option here. <laughs> so um, I tried to do a, a break test on a um, knee extension and it involved me and the doctor having it get on his back to weigh him down to stop the athlete extending his knee. <laughs> <laughs> We knew how that was likely to go as well, to be fair, but it's a matter of you don't know until you try, right? <laughs> um, I did uh, early on there were some other incidents of trying to do some uh, like pain scores tracking in response to training for an athlete with a like raging tendinopathy um, that just didn't, like, you know, the athlete wanted to participate intermittently for maybe a week or two and then was just, like, bored of reporting his pain scores, um, which was similar when I'd kind of talked to the team doctors about, like, doing some joint range, uh, like, monitor monitoring to see if we could actually not, you know, pick any changes early. And they're just like, yeah, we're just not interested. The athletes aren't interested. The doctors aren't that interested in it. Um and some of that I, I do think purely comes back to like them just not seeing the value add in it. It's like, mm. why do I need an extra 10 minutes doing these things? Like if I've got a problem, I'll come to you versus kind of this notion of we could actually do something about it before it becomes a big problem. Do you think there's a, a culture within 
weightlifting, not necessarily international weightlifting, but at least within Chinese weightlifting, that's obviously a little more old school. Because I always think this culture idea is is interesting because it's not just Chinese culture, it's the team culture. And I've worked with teams in China that have loved the technology and they've you know, they've been throwing their athletes at everything. It's like, right, get them on a force plate, get them on this, get them on that. And now you're like, you're having to have the, the opposite conversation of like, why do you need all this data? Because you've now got too much information and you don't know what you're trying to answer. Do you think there's a, just a culture of them being a little more old school or do you think it's, it's something else? I think part of it is not us not being able to, communicate to the team through translation how it could benefit them um i think if the sports scientists that work with weightlifting were to introduce some of these things they would be possibly a little bit more accepted but uh when we've tried to do things a lot of the time the team's attitude has been okay carry on you can do it and then we've had to explain to the doctor we know we can do it but we need you to explain to them why we're doing it and then that hasn't always worked out because of the language barrier so i'm not sure if it's an old school new school thing i think it might be a there might be a language issue there yeah and that makes sense like the hardest conversations i've ever had in like in china or in any any other country are when you're trying to break down the kind of the nuances of of the why you're doing something because if the person translating it doesn't understand it's going to be impossible for them to to sort of pass that along. It's amazing, isn't it, that we are so focused on the West, this idea of start with why and, and Simon Sinek's, you know, methodologies and, and from from far beyond that as well. And And like you say, actually, you get to somewhere like that where you can understand your why. You can even explain your why perfectly but there's an intermediary person who has to understand the concept of what you're trying to talk about and understand the language that you're using and then translate that into a language and a concept that an athlete can understand who, as you've said, may have stopped going to school when he's eight years old. It it makes you question, (laughs) why are we doing it like this? Yeah. Um, I wanted to just completely switch gears and ask you both. I don't think I've asked this question yet on the podcast, but um, Sam, we'll start with you. You guys, so come from completely opposite ends of the of, of the planet, come in to work in in Olympic Chinese weightlifting, completely mental. But aside from all of that, what's been your take on living in China? How do you enjoy living in China? Do you hate it? What's the good and bad like? What do you think about it? I, I liked it a lot more before lockdown. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, fair. I liked this entire planet a lot more before lockdown. <laughs> um, overall, it is. I actually think it is a fantastic place to live. Um, there's just a lot of barriers you need to get past to get there as well. Like, cause even little things like, like there's a lot of, sure there's a lot of opportunity and fun to be had in terms of travel. Um, but like simpler things like getting like access to healthcare that you're comfortable with and happy with that might meet an expectation of what your 
kind of familiar with can be very challenging or potentially very expensive. Um, and just that that language barrier, especially more so in Beijing than I guess somewhere like Shanghai where it's like doing simple things like going to the bank, getting phones and things can just be more challenging and stressful if you haven't figured out life in China yet. So I think there's a lot of people that never kind of get to the point of spending enough time in China where they can then start to really enjoy it and take full advantage of being able to actually live in China. It's more like they just kind of exist here in a stress-filled ball for a little while trying to work their way through things. Um, but then, yeah, once you start to uncover this, a lot of the simple things here, like life can be really easy. Like you can get anything ordered to your door within 24 hours almost. Like it's pretty cool. Yeah. The, yeah. the stress is real though, right? I just yeah. going to buy a phone and it takes you an hour and a half or going to set up yeah. a bank account and or I, I actually here the, the one that I that, that blew my mind was like transferring money. Like if yeah. you want to send money home, stuff like that. You can go to a bank and fill out the forms and you send money home and it's fine. And you go the next day and maybe it's a different branch or maybe it's a different server and you do exactly the same and they're like, nope, sorry, that's yeah. not how it works. And you're like, yeah. that's how it worked yesterday. Yes. So frustrating at times. And and like you say, the language barrier, I f I loved living in China. I know Simon did as well. But I found it can wear you down because yeah. even the simplest of things can be very, very challenging. If you want to go to the supermarket and buy groceries, even that sometimes can be really, really challenging. And that's when it kind of can wear on you. But as you've pointed out, you can also have some pretty incredible experiences. How about you, Nathan? I don't think that we've, ex I mean, there's a lot of foreigners that live in, in Beijing and China. And I think our experiences to those guys have been completely different. Again, if we take out, if we forget COVID and uh, we go you know, pre-lockdown, we're living all of our lives, uh, as the athletes do, in this camp environment. I don't mean like, oh, that camp environment. I mean, <laughs> in a training camp environment. <laughs> so uh, we we currently live on in base and our flat is i don't know when it was built maybe the 1930s or something like that and it's hot it's not it's not very homely um if we're not here we go to another training camp and we go to another training camp and it's like that constantly it's not like it is in the west where you go to work and then when you finish work you get in your car you drive home you go to your nice house, your nice apartment. They're the things that I'm possibly possibly missing the most. And then when I've met other foreigners here, they live more normally. They live um, in apartments that aren't attached to where they work. And mm. that's that's probably been my biggest bug there. And then again, other things. Um, I remember early on, we'd finish work and then we'd go out for the evening or we'd go out for dinner and then we get a phone call from the doctor saying, oh, we've got a meeting right now. Well, we're, we're not there. We're the other side of the city. You should have told us. They sort of assume that we're always at home because uh, that's generally how they how they live. The athletes all train. And if they're not training, they're just sitting in their rooms. 
and then they always find it surprising when we're not there. Yeah, I've certainly fallen foul of that a few times, of of being the other side of the city. And like you say, when you're talking about Beijing, is, is that city? Well, you could be two hours away, quite comfortably, and and you get a call of. Well, why aren't you just sitting in your bedroom waiting for me to phone you? It's like, well, that's not how we live our lives, but but it is how they live their lives. The team doctors, yeah. the coaches, the athletes, yeah. that is what they do. So I you can understand why they're surprised. That that that's what everybody else does. So why aren't you doing it? Yeah. Um that's tough, tough to kind of hear that. I think Simon and I had Yeah, that they, they expect go on. I was going to say, they expect us to be, what's it in, um, what's the film? In the Bourne films, when the assets are just sitting in there, sitting in their hotel rooms, waiting for a phone call, before they have to go and assassinate someone. That's what they expect us to be like. (laughs) (laughs) I I love your analogies all the time. Um, Uh, Yeah, I I would say, though, I think... um, it was really funny because I had I had that when I first went to work with uh, figure skating. I'd already got my own apartment in town, so when I turned up to work with the team, there was none of that because I was like, "No, no, I don't live here." And they were very they were very surprised by that at first, but then they very quickly got used to the fact that they oh no Simon just drives in every day he like gets on his little scooter and even when it's minus five outside he turns up on his little like moped and um it's cold on those things oh my god yeah um but it's, it's really interesting to sort of to to think about that how's that um that kind of lifestyle like affected you guys. Cause we had a, we had a married couple on the other week and talking to them about like navigating the industry and what it's like to actually work together. You guys basically have a work marriage. Cause they, they say you guys are all day, every day you work together, you live together, you travel together. Like what's, you know, what's that been like? Maybe we should ask you indiv- individually in, you know, like a sort of counseling <laughs> session styles. So like Sam, what's it been like for you? Uh, for someone that hasn't lived in a shared living environment for a long time, and the only main times that I did were when I was in the military, um, it wasn't that hard. And in large part, that's a credit that Nathan is incredibly easy to live with. Um, I do think we were very fortunate in that kind of relationship in that we do, like, we get along reason like quite well together personally um neither of us i think is incredibly like neither of us are really messy to live with or really i mean i'm noisier than nathan to live with for sure um but like personality wise we got along well enough that this has been like it's been able to work um and nathan just 
tolerates me when I'm. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a marriage. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, it sounds like Simon and I's relationship. (laughs) It's pretty much how Simon and I got. He just tolerated me. We were lucky in that we did have separate homes to go to at the end of the day, though. So, uh, yeah, I've been through both of those environments where I lived on site and I have had my own apartment and, and it is a world apart, an absolute world apart. Also depends on where you live. Um, like, a, you know, we've mentioned Beijing's a massive city and there can be areas that you live in that make the area quite fun, or there can be areas that make it really, really tough. You know, we had Matt Jones on when he was at sport climbing up in Huayru or however you say it. And that's like an hour and a half drive into the city. So definitely depends on, where you are can can change it a lot how's that been for you nathan and and was it what you what you expected because i remember meeting you at the uk sca conference a few years back um you know sitting in a cafe by the by the stadium having a having a chat before you came out to china and you know what was what was the expectation and has it kind of been very different and what's that you know kind of relationship been like with sam it is actually exactly how I expected it to be. I said to myself, it doesn't matter if I have a year and a half in some poor accommodation because I'm going to go out to chart. It's the opportunity to live in a foreign country, which I've never done before, and work with elite Olympic athletes. So they were the two things that I really wanted to get out of coming out of here. So the fact that I've got to live in substandard accommodation, that's a bit harsh, actually. It's not substandard. It's just not it's just not amazing. Um, they were the things I was willing to put up with those, willing to put up with those things because in return, I'd get to work with some amazing athletes. I, um, as you know, but most people listening probably don't know is that when we came to work for the COC, we would apply for the role, be accepted, and we wouldn't find out what sport we were working with until we got out here. Um, and I remember being there on the first day and then sitting in a room with you, with the pair of you, and you going around the room and telling everyone what sport they were going to. And then you told me I was working with weightlifting and uh, I thought I'd won the lottery. So yeah, I've spent the last two and a a half years because weightlifting was the one sport. If you'd asked me what I wanted to work in, it would have been weightlifting. It's Chinese weightlifting. We had success with one person. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and I mean, what were your expectations on the sport? Because that's another really interesting one. We've talked about this before with like young coaches being like, oh, I'd love to work with weightlifters. But actually when you get in there and you realize that a lot of the training, you know, is done by their coaches, their technical coaches, because that is their sport. What was that expectation like? And what's it been like to, to work with that sport? Well, before I came here, I had, like I just said, weightlifting would have been the sport I wanted to work with. But then my immediate response to that was to tell myself, no, don't be stupid. Why? You're not going to work with weightlifting. They don't need any strength and conditioning coaches. You'll work with another sport. And so then when I found out I was working with weightlifting, my first response was, what the hell am I going to be able to do to help Olympic weightlifters? But then, you know, thankfully, I realized that there are there's been quite a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's been lots of little movement errors and and technical, sorry, not technical errors, um, you know, just little things 
that me and Sam have worked together to fix, we've been able to improve, I don't know, tiny little things like lateral uh, hip shift and knee valgus and, and those sort of things. And um, that's generally what we've been working on for the last two, two and a half years. I'd liken these guys to say Lionel Messi. If you work with Lionel Messi, you don't have to make him a better athlete. You just have to make sure he doesn't get injured and keep him playing. And that's essentially, I think, what we've been doing with these guys. We've not had to necessarily make them lift heavier weights because they're already the best. They're already lifting world records. We just need to help them be able to maintain that and do that on a regular basis. So, and that's, I think we've had a, a lot of good success in doing that. Nice. Um, building, building on from that, I've got one last question, then we'll, I think we'll wrap it up. But I really wondered about how you guys have found the experience and how you feel you've grown as practitioners. Um, and this may differ between the two of you, because from so, a lot of the conversations I've had with, with other practitioners, S&C staff usually seem to think that they've grown quite a bit and physiotherapists often feel like they've perhaps de-skilled where they've been with the same sport dealing with the same injuries but I'm really interested to see how you guys have felt you you've sort of grown or or progressed as practitioners so maybe we'll go to you Sam first I mean I think that's a fair point that a lot of sports med practitioners are going to feel like they're de-skilled working particularly like a weightlifting environment the same four athletes for such a long time you're not you're not doing the normal assessments that you do. You're not doing the subjectives and medical screening that you would consistently do. Um, but you do get the rare opportunity to consistently work with the same four bodies for years. So when they go through an injury, you get to be there basically six days a week to feel and see how they respond, like manual treatment wise. Um, and that's also that has been a way that I've actually think feel like I've developed a lot of skills in that as a, as a physio in a normal clinic, you spend a lot of time between subjective, objective, kind of reasoning, and then a bit of time on treatment and exercise prescription. Where here it's as a physio, you're doing a lot of hands-on manual stuff, um, plus all the exercise, but it means that you can't just keep doing the same thing with an athlete for two years in a treatment session. Like you have to keep finding ways to keep progressing treatment, keep changing it when things aren't working really, you have to challenge yourself to find ways to make something work. Um, Not that it's ever good that athletes have been injured, but in a sportsman side of things, like that does provide stimulation in that you go, that's something new to deal with something new to address, Um, and, again, you get to see how that injury responds in a much more supervised environment than you would even in most professional team sport settings because you're literally working with that athlete for exercise and manual therapy like up to six days a week. You just don't have that opportunity in most, most environments. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially if you think about like a private clinical setting or a, a contract environment like I've seen a lot here in in Canada. You know, you might see an athlete once a week and yeah. that's very different because, you you know, you're spending half that time checking in, finding out, how, asking them for feedback on how they've been in the week. They might forget the first three days of the week and then be like, oh, no, I'm feeling great. And actually three days ago they were not and you're able to actually see that. So it's a really interesting sort of different mindset that you've got there. I like it. And Nathan, how have you found that 
you know, your kind of progression as a practitioner has been in your time in China? Yeah, I think I've had massive growth here. Um, my soft skills have uh, improved because they have to improve because you're working. Not only you're working with high-level athletes and a high-level coach, so you have to learn to communicate with those guys in a, in a different way, potentially. Obviously, they don't speak English and I don't speak Chinese. So um, I think through that, some soft skills have improved. From a other technical point of view, the big one is obviously I'm a strength and conditioning coach that spent two and a half years working with the best weightlifters in the world. So I've learned quite a lot about weightlifting. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm still not, I'm not a very good weightlifter. Before I came to China, I was bad at Western weightlifting technique. Now I'm bad at Western weightlifting technique and bad at Chinese weightlifting <laughs> technique. So that's an area of growth. <laughs> I just I just feel sorry for the athletes you go on to work with when you're like, right, guys, we're doing cleans today. And then you're like, that's not how you do a clean. <laughs> we're doing Chinese method today. <laughs> yeah. Guys, listen, yeah. um, I appreciate it's it's getting very late for you guys in China, and I know it's very early for Simon. I've got the lucky end of the deal on this call. Um, I know social media is difficult to come by in China. Um, so, so short of of WeChat, is there anywhere? Uh, Nathan, we'll start with you. Is there anywhere people can reach out to you and, and get hold of you if they want to find out more about your terrible weightlifting technique? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, and I've actually forgotten my Twitter handle. Um, I think it might be Nathan Stockley or Nathan underscore Stockley or something like that. Um, I'm sure you'll be able to find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah, I am on Twitter. Um, I'm not a big social media person. Um, I, yeah, One of my bugbearers is some – social media can be a bit of a bugbear of mine, the amount of social media activity that some coaches get up to. Um, they seem to, you know, yeah, sorry, we, we, we won't uh, dive too much into that because I think many coaches have said that before, so I don't need to repeat it. Yeah, sorry, Twitter. <laughs> okay, great, thanks. Short answer. <laughs> um, you can see me on Instagram at primal.physio, and that's also a web address that I own as well, so you can reach out to me through either of those. Yeah, I know. I know uh, you know, access to social media is, like I said, it's hard to come by in China. So good stuff, guys. Uh, appreciate you you coming on. Great to catch up. It's been it's been a minute since we've uh, sat down and spoke in person. So really, really good to have you on and talk all things weightlifting. Yeah, great to have you guys on. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us.